Hi, Princess. Welcome to the World XP Podcast. Uh, I think this kind of happened by kind of fell into my lap a little bit. You were going around trying to collect uh, petitions so you could get on the ballot and uh, you happened to knock on the door. And I think we had a really good conversation uh, that day. But why don't you just start off with a, a little bit of an introduction of yourself and who you are and kind of what your why you are relevant to this, like what like why you wanted to run for, for governor? Absolutely. Well, first, I want to say I'm thankful that I knocked on your door uh, and we were able to have, you know, some amazing conversations. And I'm glad that I'm uh, invited to be here today and we can go ahead and continue those conversations. So, again, my name is Princess Blandon and I am running for governor here in Virginia. And my stories, um, it, it starts in a really, really bad place with tragedy. Uh, so I'll kind of start there and, you know, kind of what led me up to where I am now. And so um, I'm from upstate New York. I uh, moved here in 2004 after graduating with my bachelor's in biology from Morgan State University. And, um, you know, I kind of joke around and tell people I kind of tripped and got lost out here because, you know, again, families from New York. And while I was at uh, school in Baltimore at Morgan State, my family came down to Middle Peninsula, Virginia to visit family. They found land. And to make a long story short, they started building houses out here. And so my mother, you know, was able to retire young because she started working really, really young for what was Bell Atlantic at the time. And, um, you know, she, things were getting pretty rough where we lived at in New York. And my mother, you know, wanted to, to get us away, get us in a safer place to give her children a better chance. Now, and I'm one of 12. Uh, on one side. So it was a lot of us, you know, but my mother definitely, and my mother and father, you know, did what they could to uh, give us the best opportunities and choices possible. So started off pre-med, uh, you know, as a young girl, I always knew that I wanted to help um, our youth. And at such a tender age, I thought that I, well, I thought I knew for sure that I was going to become a pediatrician. Um, and my time at Morgan State University definitely put the break, early breaks on that. Um, so after graduation, I worked in the medical field as a patient care technician. And I remember, uh, you know, just kind of one day, it really, really hit me that that was not for me. And so I kind of reflected back on a, a substitute teaching uh, opportunity that I had in the county that I reside in. And I, I did pretty good with it. I really enjoyed it. And so to make a long story short, uh, to kind of fast forward, I applied for a position as an eighth grade physical science teacher in Essex County in 2007. And surprisingly or not, I, I got the position and I basically was able to hit the road running and, you know, do very well in education. And early on, I said, you know, this is no longer challenging to me. I feel that I can do a better job than, you know, the administrators that, you know, uh, are over me. And so I went, earned my master's degree in K-12 uh, education administration and supervision. And then I went on to earn my EDS in educational leadership. Uh, I was able to serve as a, a school administrator for six years at both the elementary and high school level. Um, and my last year serving as an assistant principal was in 2018. Um, my brother, Marcus David Peters, who was a high school biology teacher, uh, he came in in October to fill in for um, a teacher who was no longer with us. And so, you know, my brother Marcus served as a high school biology teacher at this school that I was assistant principal at. And on May 14, 2018, my brother completed a full day of teaching and 
something went to the left. My brother ended up having a mental health crisis, his very first mental health crisis. And, uh, you know, my brother was completely unarmed, completely undressed on a highway, uh, you know, when a Richmond police officer murdered my brother. Um, I, I remember that day too clearly. And um, my first response was, that, you know, for a good while and probably to this day, I don't feel that I ever have had an opportunity to grieve because I, I jumped right into fight mode um, because the narrative that was put out by mass media was my brother's undressed body all over the television and the narrative was crazy naked man. And I knew that was not who my brother was. And I refused to sit silently and allow the media to allow the city, the state of Virginia to take my brother's lowest moment and cause that to erase all of the positive about him and allow that to define him. And so that was kind of like my spark uh, into, uh, you know, fighting, you know, for my brother, for police accountability uh, and to get justice for my brother. And that grew to me uh, formerly in a organization called Justice and Reformation. And at my brother's burial site, I had made a promise to him. And my promise was that I would not give up and that I will fight until we got justice and until we got change to ensure that a person experiencing a mental health crisis never results in a death sentence. And so since 2018, you know, my family and I and the continuously growing uh, supporter base, uh, you know, pleaded with our local and state legislators to enact legislation that calls on mental health professionals to be the first responders to a suspected or confirmed mental health crisis. Uh, we, we pleaded for things such as uh, for the creation of, or to mandate that all police departments uh, create an independent civilian review board with subpoena power to add a strong layer of police accountability when uh, police officers misuse their, 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 their power, you know, when they use ex unjust excessive force. And what we got was our legislators ignoring us, you know, from the local to the state level. It wasn't until 2020, last summer, during a Richmond uprise, that legislators, state and local legislators, reached out to me, uh, I believe, in hope that I would help kind of ease the tension. Um, and they said, you know, well, now we need a Marcus Alert, you know, bill, which is what we've been begging for since 2018. And, and now we need to talk about uh, passing a bill to end qualified immunity. Now we need to have an independent CRB bill. So now I'm getting kind of bombarded by legislators in the middle of an uprise, you know, to add special, uh, to add police reform and criminal justice to the special session is what North, Governor, Governor Northam did. And they wanted to work with me to craft these bills. Um, you know, to make a very long story short, what I saw, you know, reading bills for the first time, working that closely with our state legislators for the first time, what I, quickly saw was that this was um, all very performative. You know, they had no true desire to bring about reformative change, the changes that the people were begging and pleading for, um, that they were only willing to give us crumbs when we deserved the full course meal. And it was a conversation with Senator Heshmi, uh, who carried the bill and reached out to me about working on the Independent Civilian Review Board bill uh, you know, she proposed for that bill to be uh, enabling, meaning police departments, you have the choice whether you want to hold your officers accountable or not. And I questioned her and said, uh, why only enabling? The Democratic Party is the majority in the House, Senate, and we have a Democratic governor. You all have enough votes to be able to pass this bill to make it mandatory. And her response to me was, this is the consensus of the caucus. I said, what caucus? The Black Legislative Caucus? And she said, no, the Democratic Caucus. So for me, 
that was one of my last straws because I quickly saw again that this was very performative and that our legislators had the ability to, but no true desire to put community care and safety first. Uh, you know, and to have that, you know, uh, you know, clearly shown through enacting legislation that did just that. And so my brother's murder was my spark, but the continuous failures of the two-party system, specifically the Democratic Party, uh, you know, is what lit a fire in me that now cannot be put out. And I, you know, came to the conclusion early on, I remember doing the uprise saying, you know, it's time for the rise of a strong independent party. And I kept saying that, mm -hmm. you know, and it kind of got talked into existence, you know, and other people started saying, you know, yeah, you know, and so, and I'm saying that, but not really recognizing, okay, so what are you going to do? <laughs> you know, what are you going to do? And how are you going to be a part of it? And so I came to the conclusion that, you know, a couple of things. We have to expand our fight from the streets into the seats of these key elected positions and that we cannot continue to beg our oppressors to be our saviors because they're not and they will not. And so that's how I got to where I am now, which was the decision to run for governor to ensure that across the board from you know, healthcare, education, environmental justice, criminal racial justice reform, labor, you name it, that we ensure that liberation is a human right not a privilege, and that all of our legislation, all of our policy stances are built on a foundation of equity and humanity. Yeah, that's uh, obviously the story of your brothers is a tragic one, but I'm glad that you've kind of taken that into the into the way that you did instead of there. I know some people grieve and they kind of go into, into a hole and, and kind of spiral, go into a downward spiral, but you've taken it on and and you're trying to make the world a better place. And I think that's very admirable. Um, I do have, uh, so with the third party thing, um, one of the things that when we were talking the other day, one of the things that came to mind that I didn't get a chance to ask you was kind of what, so you answered why you broke away from the, um, from the Democratic Party, but why, where did, were there talks about maybe teaming up with like a, a Libertarian Party or a Green Party or another third party? Um, because as you and I and most people listening know, the way that the two-party system works, it's not favorable for a third party. And so were there ever any talks for, hey, we should team up and maybe with that, we would have enough to kind of take some seats or do something like that, or kind of walk me through that process of, of how you got to your party? Right. So yeah, so of course we know about other third parties, uh, but we have not seen a third party that was, uh, you know, took a very fearless, you know, stance, you know, and position at ensuring, uh, you know, that again, liberation is a human right, uh, not a privilege. To be very honest with you, one of the third parties, you know, uh, reached out to us as they're not running a candidate for, for governor and, you know, wanted me to run. But, you know, we aligned in some things, but there were other things that we didn't necessarily, you know, align in. And again, with the Liberation Party, you know, we are very strong and it's going to be heard and too is clearly understood and seen in our legislation is that no legislation should or will ever go forward as, uh, you know, when I am governor about the people without the people, you know, so mm -hmm. that's something really important because oftentimes, even, you know, with other third parties, the decision is always top down. And so we're not including the voices, needs, and concerns of the impact that oppress people when legislation is being uh, uh, crafted. So yes, we knew of other third parties, but there were no third parties that were willing to, or that we saw that were uh, have a history or actively taking a very bold, courageous, fearless, aggressive stance, you know, at 
demanding, you know, that we claim the full course meal. And again, it's from A to Z. As a veteran educator, we are still fighting, you know, for collective bargaining. I live in Middle yeah. Peninsula. I work in Northern Virginia. It's a three-hour minimum commute just for me to get to a place where I can do what I've gone to school for, what I love doing, and be able to make a livable wage, you know? And again, you know, we continuously hear, uh, you know, our legislators say, well, we, we've made progress, but we have a lot of work to do. We'll do it. We need them to say less and to do more. And so we, again, we have not found uh, you know, any party that we completely align with. And, you know, Einstein's definition of insanity is to continue to do the same thing and expect different results. And oftentimes, as you were talking about, we hear people say all the reasons why you should not support a third party candidate and, you know, how it can, you know, we can split the vote. And this is my stance on that. I'm going to zoom into Virginia right now, you know, in the, 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 the upcoming gubernatorial race. Right now, there are five Democrats that are running for office, you know, for the position. And come June, five will become one. That's very factual mathematics. Mm -hmm. They have to, you know, kind of go through the primary process to determine which of them will actually be the representative. For myself, who they say I don't have a shining chance, all I need is a num the, the, the minimum number of signatures, which at this point for this year is 2000, and I will be a choice. So the way I look at it is that my choice, my chances are much better than at least four of theirs, right? But again, it's easier to, you know, try to keep people with tradition, people uh, uh, playing it safe and following and supporting the status quo. When you have to get to the point where we start to become comfortable having these uncomfortable conversations and challenging, you know, the systems that are in place. And so that's where we are right now. And if they feel that by me running, that I will split the vote and lean it towards the Republican Party. And when I say they, I mean Democrats. If that's their fear, then they can, very easy solution, get behind me and support me. And we can make sure that that does not happen. Yeah, 100%. I think um, I'm a third party advocate as well. I think we talked about that some uh, the other day. And so it's coming more from just you are in the in the realm of politics itself and i'm kind of looking from the outside being like oh it'd be great if there was a, a third party um but like you said i've heard people during the presidential election i had people from both the democrats and the republicans saying well vote for third party to vote for the other the other side and and all this stuff so um do you have sort of and also from from your stamp from the standpoint of well, if you want to like solve the problem, then why don't you all vote for third party? <laughs> I said that a little bit too, but it didn't work out too well for, for the presidential election. But do you have any sort of um, like ideas or proposals for how to combat this on a, on a like day-to-day, -day, like getting the votes sort of level besides, so besides getting your name on the ballot? Because I think, I think from when we were talking, you're fairly close to, to getting that signature uh, count. But once you get there, what, what sort of plans and ideas do you have to, to go Absolutely. forth and, and to win it? Yeah. Absolutely. So, you know, I think that, you know, oftentimes, uh, you know, we know third party candidates, you know, we don't have the, the big establishment money. That's very factual as well. Right. And so as I had the opportunity to meet you, what you saw was we need all boots on the ground. And that includes me as a candidate. And so I see there's so much benefit in that, because when I knocked on your door, I had no idea if you were a Republican, a Democrat or you supported third parties. But what I did know is that I needed you to understand 
that as a candidate for governor that I am fighting, we are fighting for humanity and equity, you know? And so what I saw was that as I was, you know, reaching out and as we're knocking on doors, I've had countless people say to me, look, I'm, I'm a Republican, you know, and I vote Republican. But after hearing me, they said, I'm going to give you a chance, you know? So again, sometimes we stick with tr tradition and it can be very oppressive and it can be very dangerous. So again, my inability to afford, you know, all of the uh, voter registration that the two-party system has so they can do targeted canvassing is actually an opportunity. It's an opportunity to meet uh, community members, to hear what their concerns are, what their needs are, and to also let them know that you no longer have to choose between the lesser of the two evils. So, you know, what we have seen is that when we have the opportunity to meet people, you know, they are normally on board after learning about, uh, learning what we're about. So one of our big goals, continuous goals is outreach. We must continue to be boots on the ground. You know, if I can ever tell my story one day, I literally sometimes go from teaching, hopping in my car to door knocking, right? Because I'm a mm -hmm. strong believer that anything worth having is worth fighting like, you know what for, you know? And it's not going to come easy. So again, as we continue to enlighten people and let them know what we're about, you know, and, and let them know that there is another option, I feel very, very strongly that we're going to continue to gain support. The other reality is this. I hear many people say, oh, I only vote during the presidential election. That has helped the, 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 the establishment. That has helped the Democratic and the Republican Party, right? Very if much we're so, yeah. able to uh, get people, get a very, very high voter turnout and help people understand the importance, you know, in their power in turning out, you know, during this election, again, both parties have a major challenge, you know, in front of them. And the reality is, is that as it stands now, things can always change. Terry McCullough is taking the lead in the Democratic Party, you know, so all of those progressive supporters that are for the other two, you know, the other three, four candidates, right, what are you going to do, you know, many of them state that they're anti-Terry McCullough, you know, what are you going to do, are you going to allow yourself to fall into the vote blue no matter who, even though that is clearly a dangerous move, or are you going to look outside of the box and say, you know what, maybe she's not a veteran politician, but she's the impact of Virginian who will absolutely put people over profit in politics. And that's what we need. I would much rather have someone who can relate to what we're, you know, the people who are most uh, severely impacted and oppressed, you know, than someone who is uh, making decisions out of privilege uh, that has no connection with what's really going on in our most marginalized communities, that the struggles of our working class community members. Definitely. I think even for, for me personally, I was planning on voting at, during the for the governor election, but I hadn't really done much research or thought into it. Um, I have a vested interest in this now, um, based hey. on yeah, exactly, based on based on what you said. And even if we don't agree on on everything, um, being able to hear and ask you questions and kind of this is not sort of the access that you would get to um, somebody running for a spot like governor or senate or anything this is not something that you would get um ever really um so i'm very grateful for for this opportunity as well but i want to move on a little bit to so i went on the liberation party websites and was kind of going down some of the policy issues and and thinking of some of the questions and this one is not so much uh i don't not that i don't have an opinion on this but as far as the like the lgbtq IA plus rights. Um, I was at a brewery 
last weekend or the weekend before and the bathrooms they had were just like individual rooms and they said sit or stand on the door and there was like four of each and I was like that's brilliant problem solved right there right you know I, I think that you know as uh you know people are feeling more comfortable coming out to even include myself as that has just happened you know within the last you know year um, you know, a lot of, you know, we see that there are more people that are a part of this community, uh, you know, than, than we initially thought as we continue to feel, uh, you know, safe with it. But, you know, as a school administrator and as a current teacher, you know, I have some students, you know what, that, that made it clear and they're open and I love it that they feel safe enough to let us know as adults, you know, and we accommodate them, at least in the school that I'm working for, you know, we accommodate and we do it in a way that's not degrading to them you know, that's not bringing a lot of attention. And I think that that's a brilliant way to do it. You know, we need to respect people and their choices. And again, it goes back to what I said earlier, humanity, you know, regardless as to our, our identity, you know, how we identify ourselves or our, our sexual preference, we're all humans, you know, and we all, we don't, you know, people, uh, you know, who, may identify themselves in a way that you or someone else may not agree with, that does not mean they should be dehumanized. It does not mean that they should be disrespected and the spectacle should be made of them. So I applaud whatever that establishment is uh, that you visited that uh, did that. There was a big case in Gloucester County, which is a little south of us, you know, uh, you know, with, with a student and, and you know, it, it, I, I think it might have recently settled out of court, but it was in court, you know, for a while, you know, and again, a lot of it, sometimes we have people who are just stuck in their ways. Sometimes tradition can be very dangerous. Sometimes religion can be very dangerous as well, you know, and we take our own belief system and ideologies and we impose it on other people, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's really important that we get to the point where we say, okay, maybe I personally don't agree, right? But I respect your decision. I respect your your choice. And, you know, I think I may have said this statement to you before and it's regarding, you know, uh, you know, the, the LGBTQIA plus community is regarding, uh, you know, differences in ethnicities. When one subgroup's right to exist is treated and perceived as a threat to the existence of someone else, we're going to continuously have friction. We're going to continuously, you know, be at war, you know, because again, it's as if one subgroup has to be inferior to the other, and it should not be that way. And so again, we go circle right back around to what equity and humanity yeah no, i agree i agree 100 with that i think my that's kind of how i live i, I have my own beliefs and, and morals and that's how i act in in the world out in the world and, and do what i perceive is is the right thing and as long as you or whoever kind of acts accordingly and doesn't impose what they want to do on me we're not going to have a problem and that's kind of how i live my life and i think i think a lot of people there are definitely people who don't view it that way, but I think there's a lot more people out there than, than we think or that, or that CNN or Fox would have us believe uh, that exists in, in that way. Um, you did mention another term, though, uh, that was equity. And just for the sake of the rest of the podcast, do you care to kind of define what you mean by both equity and I'm sure the term progressive as well will, will pop up in the conversation? Do you care to sort of define those? Because I know there's lots of different definitions that are around there. And just for the sake of, for those listening, just so they know what you mean when you use those terms. Absolutely. And so when, when we talk about equity, 
where you know, and I when I when I go on to define this, I do want to use the word equality as well, um, because I think that uh, that needs to be differentiated. Those two terms should be differentiated between, as oftentimes there's confusion. And so when we look at equality, I, you know, I think of that as okay, well, everyone has access to the same things, right? Everyone has, uh, you know, we we make sure that everyone, uh, you know, that there's a school and everyone can walk through that school door you know let's take a community college right it's open for anyone to attend uh, a community college right however when we think of equity we uh we need to talk about ensuring that you know the the variables that the resources that all of the components are are in place to make sure that everyone can uh, walk through that door right so we can say that well everyone can go to a community college but if we have you know a person uh, a whose family has money um, if you have person A who has money and they're able to attend, and then you have person B who wants to attend, right? You know, they physically can walk into that building, but they're not able to register for classes because they do not have the financial means to, then we do not have equity. So making sure that everyone has the ability to access the same things. And then uh, what about progressive Absolutely. So when, you know, when I say progressive, when I think of uh, progressive, progressive, excuse me, I think of fearless, I think of, you know, uh, you know, actions which are moving us forward, not keeping us running in the same place, not, uh, you know, pushing us back. And so, when, you know, a lot of times when we say, you know, we need fearless, progressive leaders, we need leaders who are ready and willing to take the needed steps to move us forward, to ensure, you know, that we are uh, making progress towards a given set or, or given set of goals or given goal. Gotcha. Perfect. Um, one, another thing I noticed on the website, uh, as far as gun ownership, um, I saw there was one bullet that said um, the goal is to advance inclusive and safe gun ownership. And then, uh, maybe a, full, a few bullets later, um, the term levying anti-gun legislation uh, was used. So I was just curious as to what your sort of uh, your stance on gun ownership, gun control, gun rights, et cetera. What sort of is your stance on on that? Right. So it, it's uh, very interesting because a lot has changed for me uh, just on a very personal level. Um, but I am very supportive of the right to bear arms. Uh, you know, I know that, you know, for me, you know, looking at it on a on a very personal level, this summer, you know, after the unjust murder of, of uh, George Floyd, I think a lot of people, you know, uh, you know, especially a lot of uh, black and brown people, our fear levels started to go up. You know, when we when we saw the, you know, what happened, you know, the terrorist attack, you know, attempted terrorist attack, you know, on on the on the Capitol, you know, uh, and, and we saw the lack of accountability, you know, for it as we continue to see even post my brother's murder, even post um, the unjust murder of George Floyd, when we see uh, no police accountability, which equates to and results in police officers, in my opinion, feeling empowered to continue to, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, take the lives of individuals unjustly, uh, you know, when we see community members, you know. Uh, that are so quick to act aggressively, you know, whether it's verbally or physically towards black and brown community members. And again, there's no uh, accountability. When we hear of gun shops, you know, during that time, you know, selling out, you know, of, of, of their guns and 
you know, a lot of us, you know, are like, okay, we're not buying them. So where are they going? It, it, it brought this upcoming summer, a lot of fear, a lot of, um, anxiety, you know, for a lot of people. And I believe that, you know, every Virginian, every individual should have the right to bear arms. I do believe that we need to regulate, uh, you know, to a certain degree, the grade of firearms that's being, um, you know, obtained. And I also, you know, couldn't talk about firearms without talking about, uh, you know, we hear a lot of legislators talk about crime, you know, within some of our communities. And a lot of times they go for, um, you know, we need to, you know, uh, enact legislation that uh, does not enable individuals to uh, obtain or so easily obtain firearms. And I'm from New York. Let me just say that again. And what I will say is that to me, enacting more uh, legislation uh, regarding firearms is kind of like a restraining order. You know, a person that truly has motives, you know, to cause harm, uh, you know, we think of domestic violence, is like a person who truly has uh, motives to obtain a gun. If they really want to, they can throw in a piece of paper and saying, but it's the law or I have a restraining order isn't going to stop it. A person who, you know, we can't wipe out, there's no legislation that will be able to remove all, you know, personally owned guns, whether it's registered or not registered. There's something called the black market. So we have to start getting to the why variable. And that's something I don't hear any legislators talk about. When we talk about the crimes within our communities, uh, last month I went to a vigil of a young lady, Miss Hill and her three month old who were murdered. They were killed by a community member. Again, it's not just the, the person needs to be held accountable, but we must start taking more proactive approaches and get into the why variables that some of these uh, uh, you know, uh, acts of violence and gun crimes are happening in the first place. Again, we cannot remove all guns. That's not realistic. We cannot 100% pre um, prevent guns from getting into the wrong hands. But what we can do is take proactive approaches, help people to address their uh, mental health uh, you know, uh, uh, situations that may put them at a higher likelihood to commit some of these acts. What we can do is address the continuous generational poverty in some of our communities that keep a lot of our community members in survival mode. So, you know, again, I support people being able to legally uh, bear arms, you know. I do not support, uh, you know, people having some of these high military grade, you know, firearms as I personally do not see how, why, or where that is appropriate. As an educator, I have seen too many times uh, you know, news uh, uh, headlines of individuals coming into school, you know, with firearms, you know, that are high grade uh, and taking many lives. And so, you know, that's where I stand uh, at it as far as legislation is concerned and personally. Yeah, I, re I really like that answer. I think uh, most of the time when you hear politicians talk about it, it's either all the way one way, you can have whatever gun you want or all the way the other way. Like, like you're not going to be able to buy a gun unless you're an angel type deal. Um, so I, per I really appreciate the perspective of kind of like one side is kind of right. And one the other side is also kind of right. And that at some point we have to, you know, use our brains and realize that the black market exists. And, and if somebody really wants one, then they'll probably be able to get one. Um, one of the other things that you mentioned was the, the, the Y variable. And I think part of that definitely would be the, the education part um, and making sure people have access to good education. I think um, one of the things that, that you mentioned on the website and that you mentioned the other day was uh, you wanted to make sure that public schools have more funding. And I don't recall exactly how they get their funding currently, but one of the other things you mentioned was um, on the website was that 
you would reallocate private school subsidies to public schools. And so I was just kind of curious as to how, given that different public schools have different funding, like the ones up in Northern Virginia are have much more funding than the ones out in like Middle Peninsula or maybe inner city Richmond or something like that. What is your sort of, what are your ideas and what are your proposals to kind of balance out those discrepancies and then make sure that we get those schools that maybe don't have as much resources as the other ones up to where those, uh, like those top flight schools are in Northern Virginia? Right. Yeah. And I think that this is where we go back into that conversation of equity, right? Because we can say everyone has access, every student has access to go to schools, right? However, the amount of funding, excuse me, that is allocated, you know, to our schools is very heavily dependent on the taxpayers, you know? So if you live in an area where there's a high unemployment, you know, uh, rate, you know, and we don't have many homeowners who are paying, you know, these, these personal property taxes and so on, then there's going to very naturally uh, be um, a much, uh, there's a, a smaller pot of funds, you know? that will be able to go, you know, to that school. And so, you know, instead of us funding our schools, you know, based off of, you know, taxpayers, you know, the, the amount of funds from taxpayers, we need to start funding our schools based off of needs, you know? Um, you know, schools are one of the first areas that we do cuts, you know? Teachers, you know, I remember, uh, I believe it was last year or so hearing that, uh, you know, the governor said that we were gonna get a raise and then the pandemic hit and it was like, okay, no raise, you know, no steps from the school, you know, so it's like there's a high demand on uh, what the teachers are required to do, but we don't have enough funding for the proper resources. We don't have enough funding to ensure that the child who's who lives in a very impoverished community has access to the same quality, you know, uh, resources and even the, the same state of the art, you know, buildings. I've gone in some buildings that, that look like a juvenile detention, you know, and then you go in other, other ones and you're like, wow, is this a school, right? So we need to make sure that our, our schools are fully funded with all of the resources that they need uh, to be able to have access to the same opportunities. Uh, and, you know, again, as a, you know, as a veteran educator, I've seen it, you know, where I worked at initially was in uh, very rural Virginia, um, I worked in a Title I school. So, you know, again, when we talk Title I, we're talking about uh, the amount of, we look at variables such as the amount of students who receive free or, or reduced uh, lunch, and it was well over 75. I believe at the school that I'm at now, you know, um, it's in the 80s, you know, but again, you can go look at the public school that I work now and then go look at one of our private schools and it's night and day. Even as far as our teachers are concerned, you know, when we when we look into some of our, our private schools, you know, we don't even have, our, we're not even fully staffed, you know, with qualified, highly qualified teachers. You know, each year that I've been at my current, current school, we have long-term substitutes there. So when we talk about fully funding education, we can't do that without drawing in more qualified teachers into education, because right now there's a mass exodus, right? And that's going to have a major um, adverse impact on our schools very um, heavily on our public schools. So I had three sort of thoughts that came out of that. And the first was, I think, so you mentioned, I think early, and I think, I think maybe you misspoke, but you said you didn't want to fund it by taxes, but I assume you meant the personal property taxes. You said, I said what? I think I think you said something along the lines of you you didn't want to fund schools by by taxpayer money, but I think you meant the just the specifically no, 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 the personal property. Not, no, 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 I wasn't saying not to. What I was saying is that 
in the area that we have a um, you know a, a smaller pool because we have less taxpayers. Uh, you know, we have less, uh, you know, a lower quantity of homeowners, you know, um, then we have less money. So I'm not saying not to, but what we see is a, a, a major difference in the area where we have a lot of, you know, people who are able to pay taxes, you know. Um, so there's a divide just on that. So for example, I worked in Essex County. I lived in Middlesex County. It's, it's, the, it's slightly different. Um, like the, you know, the schools down here are not titled one, we have a much lower poverty level, right? You see that there's, uh, the schools look much better, you know, than some of our schools there in Essex County, where there's a much higher poverty level. So there's less money that are local money that's going into our school. So I'm not saying not to, but it should not be, you only get money based off of your local pool. Uh, and then an area that has a greater pool because you have more taxpayers, then they end up with, they very organically end up with more money. What we should be doing is looking at, you know, pooling the money together and distributing it based off of what do the schools need. Gotcha. Yeah, I was just, I was just clarifying that. I was pretty sure I understood, but just wanted to double check that I understood correctly. Um, and then the other thing was, uh, as far as the private schools go, and maybe this is this is my lack of understanding on how private schools work in, in terms of um, like a, a business sense or a private entity. But what sort of um, what sort of subsidies do they get that you maybe would look to change, or sort of how do you how do you propose to get these schools um, like the extra? So aside from pooling it and then like i'm trying to phrase this correctly how would you decide what what needs uh, i guess would quantify like this school gets x number of dollars versus that school gets y number of dollars but there's this private school over here that's kind of its own thing so what do they get like how would you sort of go about deciding um and like sorting through all that i hope i hope i worded that kind of correctly kind of stumbled through that a little bit but hopefully that made sense well, I hope I, I'm going to try. I hope that I'm going to answer it uh, according to what your question is. And so, you know, we believe very strongly that we need to reallocate funds that we are currently given to our private schools uh, to invest in our public schools. Um, you know, I, I think that in addition to reallocating funds that, that go towards our private school into our um, public schools is that something else that, you know, I speak very openly about, definitely not popular out there, is that we need to reallocate funds from our police departments as well to put those into uh, systems of community care and to reinvest it into uh, you know, our educational system as well. And so you know, we continuously see that our police departments are getting more funding, they're getting more training. However, we see a, a major imbalance as far as the relationship you know, uh, between police and various communities um, and the results of what we're getting. And so for example, uh, we, send our police officers out to answer mental health calls. As a school administrator, when I have students within the building and they're having a mental health crisis, we are required to call the police and, and, and escort them out. So instead of giving our police the large quantity of money that we put in them, reallocate those funds to systems of care, reallocate it to ensure that we have school counselors, you know, in our school, excuse me, that we have mental health counselors in our schools and not police officers in our schools. So I think that, you know, and as governor, we need to do a major, major needs assessment and analyst of our state budgets uh, and make sure that we are diverting our money or, you know, into systems of care. Um, again, I, I know for sure 
that a lot of funding, and I'm using the police department as one example, can definitely be better reallocated. And when we look at our private schools as well, um, you know, to me, when I when I think about our private schools, is you know, we can't talk about them without talking about kind of their origins, you know, and their their origins were to help uh, not, you know, to their origins were uh, to push against Indian segregation, you know, uh, and when we and when we talk about that, we have to look at, you know, who predominantly has access to go into these private schools. It's not people that look like me and my children, right? And so again, it it pushes the agenda you know, of, of segregation, and, and it definitely does not push equity. You know, we're going to have mm -hmm. private schools, and we need to ensure that everyone has access to those private schools. And if we, you know, have those, and, and saying that, if we make sure everyone has access to those private schools, then doesn't it just make sense to make sure that all of our schools are fully funded so they all have access to the same thing? Yeah, no, it does. And that was the next question I had, actually. It was uh, one of the things on your website as well said you wanted uh you were advocating for kind of choice and flexibility and how students would get to learn and how where they would get to go to school and so the question was kind of going to be kind of why would you need that flexibility if they were all at the same sort of level right um, and I think I want to bring some clarity about what I mean um what we mean by school choice because it's not just the uh the location you know where you go to school but even within the same school building you know um you know i'm going to use my own daughter as an example i'm not sure if i told you my oldest daughter graduated 14 years old with her uh, associate's degree then graduated from high school a month later went on to earn her um, bachelor's degree at the age of 17 and now she's finishing up her bachelor's degree so excuse me, she's finishing up her master's degree it took a lot of fighting with the school uh, system just to get them to allow her to follow the track that she was able to, to, to move on and at the pace that she was able to move. You know, our school system has a very one track system. And even though we use words such as differentiation, you know, it still forces all students to follow the same path, you know, and we must get to the point where we start teaching our kids that there's more than one way to get to the same end goal, right? And that we all don't have to jog at the same pace and we don't all have to jog on the same path. You know, Ron Clark in Atlanta has an amazing school, you know, where, you know, they have something very symbolic. They have a staircase and they have a slide. Again, it shows that you can reach the same ending point going different paths. And so when we talk about school choice, I think the pandemic has shown us that we are able to do things differently, right? So some students, it has worked very well for, you know, especially if it was a student that for whatever reason, you know, maybe was an introvert or, you know, maybe had peer relations with other students, they were able to, you know, function very well. Then we have other students who, who didn't, you know, I have a daughter who has an IEP, you know, uh, so she receives special education services and she has been struggling it has been a struggle for her, right? But if we allow, you know, students and families options, you know, for example, virtual versus, you know, physically in the, in the building, right? If we have a child who is able to excel at a, at a faster pace, why slow them down, you know, for things such as, but he or she needs those social skills, right? You know, that's when we start seeing behavioral issues because we have a child who is really advanced and we're not challenging them enough. And we're saying you have to fit into this same mode, right? Can we start doing a better job with ensuring uh, that we provide the whole buffet for students and not just gear them towards being college bound, but help those that may need trade schools. And I think that if we start opening up more choices, we're gonna also decrease our dropout rate as well. Because when we try to push everyone through that same lane, we're gonna have some students who clearly see early on that this is just not for me. 
you know, as a high school administrator, where we had to, you know, definitely keep an eye on our graduation rate just for accreditation, I had some of my babies that came to me and they're like, Ms. Lynn, I can't, but I just can't, you know, whether it's variables at home, I got to take care of a house, I got to work, Ms. Blandy, you know, uh, because my, my parents aren't doing it or my parents are dealing with X, Y, and Z. We need to uh, flex more, we need to uh, definitely exercise more flexibility and more choices. And again, I see very clearly that the pandemic has forced us to see that we can do that. And I'm happy to say that some schools are moving forward with saying, okay, we're going to offer options next year, you know, for those students who want to do things virtually, uh, you know, we will offer options. And that cohort of students that would do it were really small. My daughter was a part of a very small group uh, of students. And oftentimes those were students uh, whose parents, you know, um, were educators such as myself. So we, we kind of knew how the system worked and that we didn't really have to go the traditional way, you know, or there's students whose parents have a decent amount of money, you know, and, and they, and they have, connections, you know, uh, with people. So I'm very happy to see that schools, you know, kind of as we're transitioning and hopefully moving out of the pandemic are saying, you know what, we may, we're forced to function in different ways. And now we're going to go ahead and continue to expand our buffet of options that we put forward for families. Yeah, definitely. I think we spoke about this as well, that I was kind of a, a little bit of a victim of that one track thing as well. I skipped first grade and was doing really well up until probably like middle schoolish, and then got kind of bored and just ended up coasting through the rest of school. And maybe there was some more flexibility, could have done some, some other, some different things, but I mean, some that's amazing things. Yeah. That's, that's, <laughs> that's in the past, but, but yeah, like, like you said, is the flexibility I think is, is really important. Um, I know like I have younger siblings that kind of were similar, they got bored and kind of caused different sorts of problems, uh, behavioral problems, like you mentioned. Um, they weren't, they weren't so bad, but we won't tell them that. Um, but yeah, in, in order to get that flexibility, one of the things you would need is more funding. And I think teachers and education in general is probably one of the most undervalued things that, that we have right now, monetarily anyways, in, in our society. And for me personally, that having close friends who are teachers and relatives who are teachers, I think that's definitely one of the things that needs to be addressed. So I'm definitely happy to see that you're taking a, a stance on that and hopefully when when you win <laughs> thank you let's continue uh, yeah. to claim it <laughs> when, when you win uh we'll we'll be able to see some changes in that for the better um Absolutely. one of the so kind of going down your website a little bit more uh healthcare i saw and this is more just a this question is not really mine but more of a i've seen it tossed around uh and not just in terms of healthcare but in all sort of industries in general about the for-profit nature of, of different things and I often hear people say, well, how would you innovate then? Like the United States, yeah, we maybe we have to pay more for certain things, but we developed the COVID vaccines and we have like people come here for the like the top end surgeries that maybe are new or cutting edge or that sort of thing. Um, what What is your sort of response to that claim or question? And what is your sort of plan to address getting healthcare to those who need it whilst can whilst continuing to be able to innovate. Absolutely. You know, healthcare, you know, I, I, it's something that I, um, on a very firsthand, um, level have dealt with my, my dad has been a diabetic since he was about 11, 13 years old and just kind of fast forward now, you know, um, you know, he's in his, his uh, mid fifties and he is in a hospital very frequently. And I've been told very directly 
that he wouldn't make it many times. In his 50s, he has, um, he's relying on having dialysis. He's had uh, triple bypass surgery multiple times. And, you know, I remember being here and, you know, him being up, upstate at the hospital in New York and, you know, the doctor saying, look, you know, we're, we're not able, it's too much of a risk, you know, to, to open things up, you know, or try to open things up, you know, um, only a small uh, fr a fraction of his heart is functioning properly. And my dad's been dropped from health insurance. It's been hard to get things like life insurance because of something that he had no control over. Um, and I remember his just fear a couple of times that little princess, I can't go to the hospital, to the doctors, because I, I don't have health insurance. You know, we're kind of in that limbo fighting with, you know, uh, the insurance company. And my dad is very medically fragile, very medically fragile. And so essentially what we say is that for the haves, you deserve to live. You deserve to get the top quality, you know, healthcare services. And for those who can't afford it, that your life isn't worth it. You know, and again, you know, with us, we put humanity and equity at the, the center of all of our all of our policy stances. And we believe that access to health insurance is a human right, not a privilege. You know, you know, certain things, and I believe I said it to you, health insurance, healthy foods, you know, housing, that's at the bottom of Bloom's taxonomy. So as governor, it's not, you know, we don't just say uh, affordable health care. We need to ensure health care for all. And I understand that it's easier said than done. But what I do know is that we're able to do what we put our minds to. We're able to do what it is that we want to do. You know, I've seen countless times we just happen to find, you know, money from out of nowhere. You know, for example, in Richmond over the summer, and I hope I'm not quoting the amount, but it was either it was between three to six million dollars that the mayor said he stumbled upon in surplus. You don't just stumble upon that amount of money because it was never lost in the first place, right? So where there is a true will, there is a way. And when we have legislators, not to just include the governor, but when we have legislators that put humanity over profit, you know, then anything is possible. Just the cost of insulin alone, you know, like we have community members that cannot afford the insulin. Again, when we make it so that the that that access to certain vital you know, medications and healthcare services are dependent on your ability to pay, then we're putting profit over humanity. We're putting profit over people. And so as governor, we will comb through our budgets and we will do everything in our power to ensure that all Virginians are, you know, have healthcare insurance. Because again, that is at the very bottom of Bloom's taxonomy in order for us all to be able to survive. And, and again, the, the, you know, the pharmaceutical business, you know, the healthcare, it is a big money-making business, you know, uh, that is at the expense of so many uh, lives that just can't afford it. And it does not mean that their lives, that our lives, because I fall in that category as well, it does not mean that I should not have the right to, to have access uh, to the ability to live, you know, that I should not be able to get dialysis, that I should not be able to, uh, you know, get the, the best healthcare possible to help with a given illness. And so that's something that's really important to myself, to our campaign, to the Liberation Party, is ensuring that things such as healthcare, ensuring things such as housing, healthy access to healthy foods, right? Because that's a preventative measure, you know, in many cases. If we can help people to have access to healthy foods, then that's a preventative measure, you know? And, and something that we believe very heavily on is to, in taking proactive approaches, some things we can be very proactive, you know, uh, about, you know, such as healthcare, 
um, you know, or excuse me, excuse me, such as, uh, you know, different illnesses. In some cases, if we can ensure that people, you know, have access to some healthy foods, then they can help reduce the dependence uh, or need to seek certain uh, health care. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I, I, I think for me, it's a struggle to find the balance between uh, the, the innovation and the top end stuff, like, like you were saying, whilst also making sure that, that everybody else is not sort of left in the dust. Um, because I think, it, and I think you would agree with this as well, but the innovation and the, the kind of the money that people put in as an investment does bring, I would say some, some positives in terms of like, like the COVID vaccines and, and some of the other stuff. And so for me, it's just kind of a, a, how do you balance that? So have you, have you given any thought to kind of that sort of balance or where, where are you with that in terms of a, um, like a, not necessarily policy, but how do you allow for that to continue while bringing along everybody else? Right. So, you know, again, unfortunately, we live in a world, we live in a society uh, that is very money hungry, right? So as a teacher, I was just teaching my students, you know, we uh, learned about, you know, uh, water quality and watersheds. And I had showed them this video and we had talked about, uh, you know, Flint, Michigan, you know, uh, and, and the lead in the water. And, you know, they said, but isn't the government like supposed to protect people from stuff like this, right? So it's like, there's certain things that our government has the ability to address and to prevent. But again, we have to look at the people who are being most uh, directly or adversely impacted. You know, we look at, you know, in, in, in Flint, it was the black communities, mostly black communities, you know? that caused mothers who were pregnant to have babies with birth defects. You know, we hear about in some of our, and I know this isn't here in Virginia, nor the United States, but when we talk about, you know, the cost, you know, of some of the innovations, we, as we were watching the video, we had, uh, we were talking about water quality and I believe it was in Mexico. And there was a mother who was talking about how she lost some of her babies simply to due to diarrhea and not being able to afford an antibiotic. They are very inexpensive, right? The, the raw value of some of this, the medications are very inexpensive. So we must look at how much profit is being made, you know, for some of these medical services and for some of the medications. So would you say maybe like a, like a price cap or would you do some sort of maybe an, an audit and to see kind of what percentage of profits they're making? Or maybe you would say something along the lines of been I'm just throwing things out here. I have no idea whether or not these would actually work, but maybe some sort of, okay, we will throw you a tax break if you cut, if you cap the price at whatever. Right. Are you looking at sort of things, things along those lines? Is right. that kind of where you're at? Yeah, I think that we definitely need to put some caps, you know, in, in place. We absolutely do need to put some caps in place, but, you know, I, I am a very strong believer. And I know I said this earlier, you know, um, as governor, it will not be a princess decision. You know, I, I believe in bringing people to the table. You know, let's bring in, uh, you know, stakeholders to the table. Let's bring in people who are impacted, you know, by the very, very high cost of, you know, excuse me, of some of our medical services and medications to the table. Right before I got on this call, I was on a stakeholders uh, a call for, <laughs> for the Marcus Alert uh, bill. And, you know, I was giving them in, uh, feedback and some of my questions they kind of ignored. But, you know, again, we can't keep 
pushing legislation forward about people who are impacted without making sure that we're elevating and including, you know, their feedback and their concerns. So, and that's important because when we talk about equity, and I think you and I talked about this a little bit, what someone was, and when we look at equity and equality, you know, someone may say, okay, well, you know, we want to make sure that we provide equal housing opportunities for everyone. That's the thing, isn't it, right? Well, what's considered equal, you know, or, or, or you know, what somebody may say is equal, you know, may not be for the, you know, one person, you know, to the another. And that's why taking an equity lens, you know, even if we're looking at sliding scales, right? So we can't put everyone in one category and say, okay, we've decreased the pricing for, you know, the cost of living or, or a housing unit or a rental property. Uh, so now this should be equitable, equitable to everyone because it's not going to be. And it goes back to what I said about education. We have to get rid of that one size fit all, you know, system. And I believe that is true as well. When we start looking at healthcare, when we start looking at, uh, you know, access to, you know, medications, you know, going back to insulin. If we say that we, we dropped the price to $10 and I'm just making this up very uh, hypothetically, uh, you know, for access, you know, for insulin. Well, maybe to you, that's, you know, something that you can afford. But to me, you know, if I'm struggling just to stay employed, then that's not something that I can afford. So therefore I will not have access to it. So again, I think that things that are uh, heavy, um, heavily connected to our right to exist and survive, we really need to zoom in closer and look at how we have been doing things and to make sure that we are ensuring equity so that everyone has the access to those things. And I, and I do feel that education is a part of that because uh, you know if we do not ensure an equitable, a high quality education for all and not just some, not just those that are private school, then becomes a negative snowball effect, right? Then you're going to have a hard time getting employment. You know, uh, you know, if, if we, we, we have the ability to get some of our students licensed to be a CNA before they even graduate high school, right? So we're putting them in a position where they can come out of high school making money compared to a school that does not have such programs. And so we're, we have a student who is coming out struggling to get employment or they're making minimum wage, you know, somewhere else. So again, are we ensuring that all of our schools, you know, have those, um, you know, excuse me, honey, I need you to move. Are we ensuring that all of our schools have those trade programs so that our students can all have the same opportunity or is it only our, our highly funded schools? And the same thing again is true with medications and access to healthcare. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I agree with, with pretty much all that. I think, and, and again, I've, I've not probably done as much research on, on the healthcare sort of, I don't want to call it an issue, but hot button topic uh, as, as maybe some other things, but it's definitely, it is one that we need to address. And I'll, I'll say, I'll say that, yeah. I think. Yeah, I, I met it, like I said, I, I met a veteran who had to go back to, it might've been on my way up to your uh, area, uh, but I met a, a veteran in Fredericksburg and I was telling him about my campaign and he said, so what do you, what, what is your stance on healthcare, right? And he said, what better yet, what is your stance on veterans, right? And that's something that we need to talk about as well, which I, I know that that wasn't a question, but you know, we have veterans who have served their time. And this particular young man told me he had to go all the way to Puerto Rico to get a medical procedure done because the VA refused to uh, cover it. But that's not just exclusive to this young man. I, I hear countless as I was uh, up in um, Blacksburg. There was a young lady at the front desk of a, of a hotel and she saw my mask, you know, and of course, so she stopped me and, and we talked and with tears in her eyes, she went on to say how her husband was a veteran. But our state, you know, our government refuses to provide them with healthcare services, even though they put their life on the line, they've served their time. So again, where's that humanity at? Where's the equity at? 
you know, um, and, and, and this unfortunately um, is a huge variable that to me uh, just kind of breaks us and causes divides, uh, uh, you know, amongst us. Uh, and we need to definitely, um, you know, move towards an equity lens across the board, not just in healthcare, not just in education, uh, you know, but across the board. You know, even when we talk about housing, you know, ability to obtain housing, there's still a lack of equity and discrimination in just the, the mortgage process. Um, so we have a lot of work that needs to be done, uh, you know, and again, we need to continue to uplift and move forward um, uh, progressive legislators and candidates that are going to say less and do more and that are, are going to come on in and be ready to, you know, fight to push, you know, for equity um, and humanity and get the job done. Because what we oftentimes see as a young, older Black man said to me when I was canvassing for another candidate, he said, ma'am, he said, you know, during election time, legislators, they come out and they tell us what we want to hear so that they can get our vote. He said, but they never follow up and they never follow through. And time after time after time, our legislators show us that that's the truth. And they may go in it with uh, a good intentions initially, but oftentimes we see that, you know, um, big corporations become the, the mouthpiece of candidates and of, of political parties. And what started off as a good intention, you know, results into that candidate, you know, or that legislator falling right on in line and, you know, uh, basically uh, supporting the status quo. And, and we, we deserve better than that. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with that as well. So this leads me to a, a question that I had planned on asking later, but I'll ask it now because you brought it up. What is to stop you from becoming that candidate that goes in with good intentions, but gets sucked up by the system or some sort of corporation or something like that? Have you made a pledge to not accept donations from Absolutely. certain companies and, and other things like that? Or kind of what, like if you're talking to somebody and they ask you this, this question, well, obviously I just did, but what is, <laughs> what is, what is your, what's your answer to that? Absolutely. Well, for one, yes, you know, I, my, uh, you know, I, my campaign, the Liberation Party, we will not accept donations from big corporations because, again, what happens is, uh, you know, they end up becoming a, a, a major mouthpiece, you know, um, in policy decisions. Um, and, you know, when you say what's to stop me from, uh, you know, from falling in, in, into that same rut is that I am running out of necessity. Not because this is just something that I always wanted to do, you know, um, but I am running out of necessity due to the continuous failures of the two party system. I am running to be one of the many voices, hopefully, that will continue to elevate the voices, needs and concerns of the voices of the unheard, you know, of the oppressed people of the working class. And I want the community members, our constituents across the Commonwealth to hold me accountable, hold me to what I say that I'm going to do. And the good, the, the great thing is, and, and when you say, well, what stops you from doing that is that I don't have Dominion behind me. And I'm using Dominion as an example. Dominion isn't giving me money, you know, and so they don't have any leverage over me. The only people who can hold me accountable is the people, not big corporations, you know, or not a, not the two-party system. And a lot of times, again, uh, you know, the, you know, we're getting ready to see this. I'm glad we're talking about this because we're getting ready to see it. So if I have a crystal ball and if my crystal ball is correct, out of the Democratic primary will come Terry McCullough, all right? When you look at some of the other candidates, such as Jennifer Carroll Foy and Jennifer McCullen, they've been pushing very hard, you know, we need a Black governor. We need a Black woman, right? 
You never heard me say that. I know I'm black, you know, but I need somebody that's more than, I need more than just somebody's pigmentation. I need their substance, right? And so you won't hear me, you know, uh, uh, boasting, you know, that we need a black, um, you know, governor. However, remember or go back and listen to them saying that because after the primaries, if Terry McAuliffe comes up, watch how they fall in line and support him. If I, and I will be a, the only black woman that will be on that ballot, let's see if they still say we must have a black woman, you know, as governor. They're going to fall in line and they're going to support the party, you know, even though they bashed him so hard. So again, I'm not, I don't have a big party, you know, that I am pressured to do that, you know, we rose up an independent party, a liberation party, you know, that is committed to put in the needs, voices, and concerns of the people over profit and politics. I don't have big corporations, you know, that just donated millions of dollars to me. We're, we're, we don't have much at all, you know, but we do have the support of the people and we do have uh, very committed volunteers uh, that continue to go around the Commonwealth with me, listen to the voices, needs, and concerns of the people. And we're dedicated to making sure that as we move legislation forward, that we elevate those needs and, uh, and concerns. So let's say a small business comes knocking. Do you have kind of, have you talked with your like campaign people? Like, hey, we're not going to accept the donation from a company over blank size revenue or employees uh -oh, or kind of. froze for just a second. How about now? I can hear you. Okay. So let's say, let's say like a, a small business comes, comes knocking and says, hey, princess, we, we like what you're doing. Uh, we want to donate to your, to your campaign. Do you have a like a size cutoff that you've talked about with your campaign people or, or kind of, cause I, I think most small businesses, I would say would not fall under the umbrella of what um, most progressives or, or people on, on the left would call deem corporations. Like some mom and pop shop wants to give you 150 bucks or whatever, like a thousand bucks. I would assume that you wouldn't say no to that. Is that, is that a fair statement? It is a fair statement, you know, that unless it was one that we, you know, they, they have a foundation and they have, you know, a history of, uh, you know, representation of, of things that we are definitely not for, then we absolutely have no problem with projecting. We haven't had that problem yet, but we have had, you know, um, you know, some small business owners, you know, uh, put forth donations, you know, for us, and they're, they're small, as you just stated, you know, so that hasn't been a problem. But, I, you know, it is important to look at, you know, where your money comes from. And oftentimes, you know, uh, when we look at um, different organizations, um, and, you know, I had talked to someone during an interview yesterday, and they had asked me a question, the question was on the line of, you know, how do you feel, or, you know, what, what do you see as far as the relationship between a grassroots organizer? and politicians and that was I, I never had anyone ask me that question and I was uh, uh, grateful for it because what oftentimes what we see uh, even on the ground is again sometimes we have organizations that may have started and they have great intentions but once uh, you know kind of politicians get to them you know or some of these big corporations it kind of deflates what their initial intentions were for. So maybe that org grassroots organization was fighting for housing rights, right? To ensure, you know, housing for all. But once some of our politicians or big corporations start to support them and fund them, now they control their mouth. They control how far they can fight. I dealt with that firsthand, you know, after my brother was murdered, you know? Um, you know, early on, you know, we had all hands on deck and it's like, yeah, that police officer needs to be held accountable. You know, after we did our first march, I remember saying, wait a minute, mm -mm. 
yes, that police officer needs to be held accountable, but we need to go further. Who's giving police officers the green light to do this? We need to hold our elected officials accountable. And some of those same organizations, you know, and community members backed away. They were like, whoa, princess, you're going too far. You're saying hold the elected officials accountable now? You mean like that same mayor who's supporting my, you know, helping and funding my organization? No, we can't do that, right? So, you know, oftentimes when you have, uh, you know, funding and support, you know, from some individuals, that can be very, very dangerous. And we're committed to not be sold out, you know, by any other politicians, by any other organizations, you know, we're not going to do that. You know, we know why we started, we know, uh, you know, what our mission is, what our purpose is, and we're going to always stay true to that. And we want the, we want our constituents to hold us accountable. We want our constituents, uh, you know, to hold us to the fire to doing exactly what we're what we say uh, that we're for, which is ensuring liberation is a human right, not a privilege. And you'll probably hear me say, you know, uh, they and we, because it's not about me. I am just I am a I am a vessel for the people. You know, I am just one of so many, you know, who are pushing my campaign and pushing the Liberation Party forward. Yeah, I think that's almost how it, how it like was intended to be back in when the Constitution was made. It was a you are a vessel for the people to kind of what do the people want, and then that's what you're you're there to represent them. So it's refreshing to hear you say that as well. I think uh, you mentioned something a little while ago about uh, minimum wage. I, I kind of want to move on to sort of the more economic um, issues, and and I was googling uh, right to work because I've heard uh, Virginia is a right to work state all gazillions of times and I finally got around to figuring out uh, sort of what it meant and one of the things that uh, sort of struck me or stood out to me a little bit was we you and I talked before about police unions and and sort of the power that they hold and yet when when I read right to work and sort of it takes power away from the union's and also you mentioned uh, sort of you want to repeal the, the dangerous aspects of right to, work, right to work. So I kind of just wanted to get some clarification on what that last part meant, the dangerous aspects of right to work, but also sort of that balance of, okay, maybe this police union has too much power, but we also want to make sure that workers sort of have more of a, we want to give unions sort of a, a prop up, um, but not necessarily the police one. So that's kind of like three questions in one, but. It's okay. Yeah. And so let me know if I, if I missed something. So, um, you know, as I said to you earlier, you know, I am a teacher, you know, and, you know, we, um, you know, collective bargaining is something that we have been fighting for. You know, I remember when I went into my, my job, uh, you know, when I first started my job in 2018 at this new, you know, where I'm currently at, and I wanted to negotiate my contract. <laughs> and they were like, no, we're, we, we just, we just don't do that. Right. And so, you know, I don't feel and didn't feel that I was being, you know, compensated for my years of experience and for my level, my level of education. And so it's kind of, you know, when we look at, you know, right to work, it's kind of like, uh, we don't have the ability to negotiate our contract and to fight for some of the uh, benefits that we may feel that we we collectively um, uh, deserve, and so it's important that employers are empowered to be able to do that, right? And it's not kind of like you you take it or or you leave it or you just don't you don't have a job. And you know it's kind of like you I hear you you kind of saying okay, but you're saying support unions, but uh, not police unions, right? Well, <laughs> I am saying that, right? And and this is the reason why <laughs> this is the reason why um, for couple of reasons. I remember, and I'm not sure if I told you, because I know we talked for great length, uh, but I remember um, 
the day of special session, the first day of special session during the uprising this past summer, uh, my uncle Jeff and I had um, uh, Delegate Hudson uh, uh, from Charlottesville had requested to meet with me uh, and my uncle right before special session began. And one of the questions that my uncle asked her was, are a lot of elected officials, um, state elected officials, are their campaigns funded by police unions? I don't know where that question came from. You know, he just asked her. Um, and she kind of dropped her head and she said, yeah, you know, and we need to take a moment to process that. Because like when we look at, okay, well, the Virginia, uh, in Virginia, the Democratic Party is the majority in House Senate and we have a Democratic governor. So they have the numbers to pass the bill to end qualified immunity. They have the, the numbers to mandate uh, independent civilian review boards with subpoena power, but why aren't they? You know, again, as I said earlier, we have to trace the money, you know, we have to trace the money. So again, what happens in my opinion is that these police unions become a big mouthpiece as well, as far as how far our politicians will go. Twice in two months, in six months, excuse me, the bill to end qualified immunity was heard. Guess what happened? Twice in six months, that bill was killed. And so we see that the police unions, you know, have a major, major, a major, major pull in uh, our political system. And not only that is when we, we look at how the police unions are being used, you know, they are a major force again in protecting police officers, even when, you know, they act out of uh, their ethical, uh, you know, uh, realm, you know, when they unjustly use force to, you know, apprehend a person, whether it's police brutalization or it's murder, you know, again, they are serving as a um, oppressor there to the people, you know, uh, instead of just empowering and protecting the rights of police officers, they have a whole nother monster, you know, uh, a layer to them that you will not hear politicians talk about. And again, I don't mean to put uh, Delegate Hudson out there, but she told us that, you know? And again, that's something that's really, really important because when we elect, um, you know, our various elected officials on a local to, to state level, we elect them to represent the, the needs of the people, right? But that's not happening when you have dominion, you know, that's being their mouthpiece. And that's not happening when their mouthpieces are their, where their money is coming from you know, which includes police unions. And so, yeah, we're, we're, we're definitely for defunding the police in general. And, you know, you didn't ask, but I'm going to say it, you know, again, we are for de defunding the police and reallocating funds to systems of community care. What we're saying is that we cannot put everything from A to Z on our police officers, you know, plate and expect them to do it and do it right. They are not trained to deal with mental health they should not be dealing with mental health calls. They are not trained to deal with a person who just had a drug uh, overdose. They should not be dealing with that. They are not trained to handle a three-year-old in a school who just had a mental health crisis and is seeing things or people, but that's who we are, we, we are told that we are required to call. So instead of giving them money to do what they can't do, reallocate that money to systems of care. You know, it is not done. So when they commit these offenses, when they commit the, these murders or acts of police brutalization, they feel empowered to continue to do it because between the police union and the and the elected officials that are supported by the police unions, they're backed. They're backed and they're covered and they feel empowered. And so we must, in my opinion, first step is defund the police. And our next step is we have to abolish the police. 
abolish the police and raise up a brand new system that is ensuring equity and humanity is what is built upon because our police that built uh, excuse me our police departments are systemically racist if you look at from their origins they're systemically racist and until we you know you can hire as many police officers new police officers as you want but as long as our legislation still empowers them to do the same things that they have been historically doing for a long period of time they're going to continue to do it there's no amount of money that we can keep throwing to them you know uh we hear them say give police more training, invest in the police more, give them crisis intervention training. The police officer who murdered my brother was crisis intervention trained. He did not use any of the training that he received. There was no accountability for him using it. And what do we do? We continue to throw money towards the police officer and say, just train them more. No accountability, but just keep giving them training because it looks good, it sounds good. Again, these unions are back in our politicians Therefore, they are, they're financially back on our politicians and they are becoming the mouthpieces of our politicians. So I have a couple of things. I'm going to go kind of one by one. In terms and, I, of, and I will tell you, I only have a couple more minutes because <laughs> okay. I, I do have to get to my little one, but I'll take another question or two. Okay, so I will. All right, so I'll go with uh, one real quick, and then I'll go to the wrap up. Um, okay. the, the first one is that in terms of unions, what is, and your support of other unions, what is to stop them from becoming the beast that the police unions currently are today? So it wasn't really so much like, I forgot how you phrase it, but anyways, what, what is to stop those unions from sort of becoming the beast that, that the police union is, is today at this point? So there's like a national call, you know, to address this, you know, basically putting a cap, you know, on how much, uh, you know, how much donations or how much funds, uh, you know, can go to a politician or their, or their campaign. And so right now, you know, we look at some of the, it's all public information. So you can pull up mine and, and it's laughable to me, you know, uh, because not much funds at all. But if you go on, you know, to uh, the reporting system, you're able to trace back funding, you know, to each of our politicians, to each of their campaigns. So there's a national move to, you know, put caps, put limits on the amount that can be donated to a, you know, to a campaign, because what ends up happening and very frequently is the campaign that makes the most money, that can rack in the most money is oftentimes the campaign that, that moves forward. So it's not necessarily that that's the best candidate. That's the candidate that has the money, you know, enough money to have the TV ads, you know, that's the candidate that has enough money to put billboards all around. So we have to be equitable with our, with even the funding, because that would help to cut down on these, whether it be the police uh, union or whether it be big corporations like Dominion or Appalachian Power, you know, uh, that end up becoming the mouthpiece of so many of our, our candidates, our legislators, and that has a direct impact on legislation that is passed or not passed. I agree. I think that's good. I think a cap on that sort of thing is good, is, which kind of hopefully make the substance of, of that candidate show through rather than the amount of money they got. Um, the other thing uh, is sort of, I've heard people say, um, as far as the police training, they need more training. It's from, I think uh, somebody that was in, you know who Jocko Willink is? 
Say one, say the name one more time. Jocko Willink. He was a he was a Navy SEAL. He made the argument on on a podcast that I listened to a little while ago that the that if they were training more, the police were training more often in terms of um, like the crisis and intervention training instead of doing it like once a year or however long however often they do it now. If they were training like once once a month or once a week or something like that, then maybe the situation would be different. Do you have any sort of thoughts on that or not, or not really? I do. I do. I, and I totally disagree uh, because, you know, I'm going to go back to the analogy that I used earlier, you know, um, as a doctor, as a nurse, if you're trained in CPR and, you know, you see someone, a patient right in front of you, turning blue and you just stand there and you know how to perform CPR, you have the ability to help that, 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 that individual, but you just stand there and you just watch and you refuse to use any of your training. I want you to tell me, what is going to happen to that doctor that sits there or stands there and watches and does not render aid, does not use CPR to help? What, what do you think is going to happen to that doctor? Fired or some sort of other disciplinary yeah. action. They're out of whatever. here, okay? Yeah. And that family's got a big lawsuit against them. No question about it. But with police officers, and I'm going to use my brother as an example, Officer Michael Nayataki was crisis intervention trained, but he did not use any of the training that he received, Okay. So my point is that training without accountability is useless, okay? That doctor being trained in CPR, refusing to use it and not being held accountable, it makes that training useless because he or she did not use the tools that they were trained to use, you know? So we, I know I don't agree that more training is the answer. Accountability training coupled with strong accountability is the answer. If officers know that you can't go putting your knee on someone's neck without worrying about being having charges against you and there being strong accountability, then you're not gonna go walk around putting your knee on anyone's neck. In Richmond, there was a police officer who threatened high, I believe they were middle school or high school students and said, wait until your ASS turns 18, you're mine, okay? There was no accountability. The officer said he was gonna apologize publicly. He didn't and it was left, you know? So again, they're able to do, because all they have to say, oh, I feared for my life. I saw this little black boy and I feared for my life. You know, it's not okay. So if the officers are not being held accountable. That's why I even post the, the uprise after the, the uh, murder of George Floyd, up until the day that George Floyd's trial was going on and the verdict came out, someone was murdered by a police officer that very day while they were, you know, while the trial was going on. But again, we can't keep putting band-aids on things. That's what our legislators like doing. They love putting band-aids on things, right? But we have to start killing the snake at its head. We must start getting to the root of the problem. You know, if officers knew that, you know what, if you pull out that gun and you shoot someone, okay, without using every tool that you possibly had, you're going to be held accountable. I guarantee you they're going to think twice before they pull out that gun. But if it's so easy to just say qualified immunity, oh, I feared for my life, right? because he went and I thought he was grabbing a gun. There's a person in, I think the young man is in Spotsylvania about uh, a month ago. I think it's Isaiah Brown. I hope I'm not saying the wrong name. I think he it was, was shot, as well. Yes, he was shot multiple times by a police officer who had just dropped him off at home, okay? For whatever reason, he was called back. They said that Isaiah, you know, was having a confrontation uh, with his, his brother. The police officer shot him several times to include in his face. Tell me where is the humanity there? Tell me where the threat is that you need to shoot a person in their face. Where is the line between 
you know, you know, trying to control the situation and being able to, you know, uh, prevent that person from being a threat anymore. Okay. And mobilizing that person, you know, shooting them in the leg, you know, or something better yet. How about we go ahead and use a baton, hand-to-hand combat. So we train the police officers on all of these things, how to use a taser. We equip them with them and they're not cheap. We equip them with a baton. We equip them with hand, you know, uh, hand-to-hand uh, combat training, but they don't have to use any of that. When, it, when it's out there, when they're out there, a job that they signed up for, okay, we allowed them to just say they were scared. As a school administrator, I have been threatened as a teacher, but more so as a school administrator, when, because I have to hand down discipline as an assistant principal. I've been threatened. My life has been threatened multiple times. I've been hit, but not one time have I tried to cause harm to anyone. My only tool that I have is my word. So I need to try to deescalate things with my mouth. Because if I even begin to put my hands on a student or a parent, best believe I'm not only going to lose my job, I will be charged. So why is it again that police officers who know the risk that they are signing up for, all they have to do is say that they were scared. Countless black and brown people are gone today because a police officer said that they thought that their uh, phone charger was a gun. We had a police officer, female, who shot someone and said she thought she pulled her taser. Really? Is the training that bad? There's a weight difference. There's complete difference, even in the physical characteristics and how a gun versus a taser feels. But again, we give them every benefit of the doubt. And my thing is this, when you have the ability, when you have the power to take someone's life, we must ensure that there's accountability in place. And there's not. This is a very protected department. This is a very uh, protected system. We are functioning in a very systemically racist society that many people don't want to acknowledge because it's so much easier not to acknowledge it. It's too big of a monster for people to attack. But if not now, then when? If not us, then who? We can't talk about equity and inclusion and not make sure that our our legislation is showing that. If it doesn't start at our legislation, then everything else is going to, from from getting access to uh, mortgages, to the the quality of education in all of our schools, to access to, to healthcare, you name it. And so I hold our elected officials at a very, very high level of accountability. And it infuriates me when they advertise themselves as candidates and call themselves progressives when all they're doing is a a very large performance and they're giving us crumbs. They're always taking the path of least resistance. And by them doing so, people are losing their lives. By By them doing so, people do not have the access to this quote unquote American dream. Okay, because of a lack of equity across the board in so many different areas. And so I believe that we must demand more. We must continue to enlighten, empower, and mobilize our community members so that they can continue to um, challenge the status quo and that they can continue to rise up and claim some of these key seats. Gotcha. Time for one more smaller one, and then then we'll get you out of here. (laughs) You got it. Only for you, Eric. (laughs) <laughs> oh, thank you. I appreciate it. This one's a, a little bit less, it's not really policy related, but for, for you personally, how, how is your life different now that you're kind of in, in the public eye a little bit? It's like you can just Google your name and, oh, Princess Blending said this six months ago and like all that stuff is just out there now. How, how is it different for you? Um, I, you know, I live my life. I feel like I live it the, the, the same. Well, I, it's been the same for the past three years. I've been, I've, I've been fighting. Like I don't, um, you know, I, I I don't really 
notoriety doesn't mean anything, you know, to me at all. You know, I shop at a secondhand store. That's where I get most of my clothes from. You know, like I, notoriety doesn't mean anything to me. You know, uh, you know, I feel, I feel called to do what I'm doing. It definitely, if you would have asked me, even in 2018, when my brother was murdered. I remember people saying, you need to run for mayor. And I literally was like, yeah, right. Like I hate politics, but I had to force myself to get out of that mindset because otherwise I was running in place. Otherwise, I was just complaining against my peers. It's kind of like when you're at work and everybody's griping and complaining about something, but nobody wants to go up and address and confront the manager, right? You know, or, or, or your boss. And nobody wants to take on that position and do a better job, you know? So, you know, I, I feel that I've been called. It's not easy. It's not easy. I can't afford, you know, to stop working as some other candidates uh, have done. You know, I don't make a six-figure salary. So I literally go from teaching all day and my babies don't even know I'm running because I believe in giving them my all. I don't even, I don't, if they find out it's not going to be for me because when they see me, I want them to see my teacher, Miss Blandon, you know, and know that I'm there to make sure that I'm giving them my all. So I transitioned from doing that to walking out the door and I'm interviewing, you know, on the drive home, you know, also making sure that, you know, my middle school daughter is, is okay. And she's on top of her grades and, you know, checking on my middle daughter and getting ready to help my oldest daughter move into a house. And so my life is like this, you know, uh, sometimes I don't feel like I have much time to breathe. However, I do believe, as I said earlier, that anything worth having is worth fighting very hard for. And I believe in every single thing that we are doing. I am surrounded by a major support system within my family because I couldn't do what I'm doing if I did not have them. And I'm also surrounded by my second level of family, which is my campaign and other community members because again we are all volunteers i can't afford to pay my core team you know uh you know maybe a volunteer here and there but our team works seven days a week around the clock it is not uncommon for us to have a meet in order to be in communication two o'clock in the morning and nobody complains because we all believe in what we're doing and we all were forced to see very directly and very firsthand during the the uprise last summer that was a turning point for all of us you know, we were able to see how our legislators are continuously felling us, how they are riding on and they continue to grow and stay in their positions uh, uh, based off of tradition and based off of fear, you know, uh, you know, riding off of fear of people. Um, and we're, we're not okay with it anymore. You know, we've, we've seen a lot, you know, uh, during the uprise. We've seen, you know, people, young, old, white, you know, Black, you know, Latinx, you know, all on the front line in unity and being attacked by the police and not one elected official took a stance for us. And why were we being attacked? Because we were fighting for our right to exist, you know? So how can we be okay with that? How can we be okay with just accepting the status quo? And so, you know, again, you know, uh, name recognition, that, that means nothing to me at all. Um, I just, what would mean the most to me is being able to be a major change age agent and to move the Commonwealth, you know, to a very liberated and inclusive Commonwealth where we all have the right to exist, uh, you know, where we all have the, the right to, to grow, you know, and to thrive. That's what means a lot to me. Well, sounds good. I see your, your little one right there. Let's get you out of here. She's I, with me, yes. <laughs> I, I really appreciate your time and uh, hopefully, hopefully we'll, we'll see you up there at, at some point, but. Let's claim it. Yeah, wish you the best of luck. Thank you so much, Eric. Thanks so much. Bye, everybody. Take care.